Chapter 2, Part 2 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 2 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Part 2 The Franco-Prussian War Soon after the fall of Paris, Miss Barton determined to make her way thither, but before leaving Strasbourg, she placed before the authorities of that city her views of the kind of organization which should be permanently established there for the relief of those who were suffering by reason of the war. That letter shows how thoroughly she understood the problem of administering relief without pauperizing the beneficiaries. Monsieur Bergen, member du Comité de Sacrois, Strasbourgia, Monsieur, your very courteous request that I would present something of my ideas in reference to the subject of employment for the poor of your stricken city demands, perhaps, that I explain first the reason and origin of my own presence here. A long and familiar acquaintance with the calamities of war led me to direct my steps to the gates of your besieged city the first day that it was possible to enter, viz. September 29th. Not as a matter of curiosity, for bombarded cities had long ceased to possess any novelty for me, but to ascertain if there were any service I could render. My earliest visit was to your civil hospital, and its wards of wounded women, which were indeed a novelty in the history of the world. Seeing no better way of serving them, I took a written account of each woman at her bedside, what she had suffered, and what she had lost, and carrying the sad record, placed it personally in the hand of Her Royal Highness, the Grand Duchess of Baden, which I trust contributed a little toward directing to your afflicted city the immediate and active sympathy of that court and capital. This accomplished, I returned with my present excellent and efficient assistant, Miss Zimmerman, to learn what further could be done. A few days' observation convinced me that, in the majority of instances, the actual loss of property which had been sustained by the class of persons who came to demand charity was of less real importance to them than the total loss of their customary remunerative occupation, that while the first merely reduced them to want, the latter would make of them permanent beggars and vagrants thus doing for their moral all that the bombardment had done for their physical condition with the somewhat forlorn hope of being able to arrest in a few individual instances these disastrous consequences i at once commenced the system of work giving in which occupation you have found me and concerning which you have done me the honor to ask some opinions and recommendations. If I might be so bold as to make a single recommendation, 
in reference to this unhappy population under their present calamitous circumstances it would be that of the most immediate promotion of honest industry that at the earliest moment labor be made to walk hand in hand and step by step with charity and wherever it is possible to precede the charity that gives without return to open every possible avenue of employment to all classes of individuals, especially the women and children, in view of the peculiar nature of the calamities of the present hour, which have left so large a proportion of them without the husband and father of the family, upon whose labor they must have been more or less accustomed to depend in former times. A first step would certainly be the making of garments with which to keep themselves comfortable and wholesome, and if I might be permitted to make a suggestion, it would be that strong but cheap colored material, either of wool or cotton, suitable for dresses, skirts, and sock for women and girls, and pantaloons and blouses for men and boys be purchased either from manufacturers or merchants all of whom are suffering from the effects of the war and carefully fitted and arranged be given to women to make up in their homes after the manner which we have pursued with the thirty or more who are at present employed from these rooms true every woman will not sew well at first but we have found that nearly every one will learn and have now no trouble with our workers and the garments made by them are good enough to be placed in any ordinary clothing bazaar for sale the immediate disposition to be made of this clothing when finished is still an important question for the moral effect upon those who are to receive it i would recommend that it be not given outright and entire as this course still has the tendency to foster habits of beggary and vagrancy which it is so desirable to discourage receipt without return is ever demoralizing and for this if it were better that the poor even pay something for what they receive if it be only a small proportion of the original cost and with this view i would recommend the placing of the articles in a kind of bazaar connected with and forming a part of the present noble establishment of the comite of which you are a member and a price more or less real and more or less nominal be placed upon them such a price as will bring them within the reach of all excepting the most abject who are forever perhaps to be treated after the ordinary modes of wholesale charity but the effort should be always to reduce this class as much as possible by lifting up out of it every family and individual that kindly encouragement paid labor, and reasonable prices can elevate above it. One would soon find that a small sale-room of this kind would not necessarily be confined to the few varieties which I have named, but shoes, 
stockings, and many articles of ordinary apparel, and perhaps also many articles useful in the family household would find their way into it, and thus, through the generous and protecting hands of the comité, substantial aid and a first impetus be given to many a small but worthy and unfortunate artisan of your city who now finds no purchasers for his products or no material to commence his work and to the smaller merchants who find now no purchasers for their goods i would not have it supposed that i present this little idea as a permanent cure for existing ills but as a momentary help in time of trouble until the hard season passes and business has time to resume a little its ordinary course care would have to be taken to guard against imposition to see that persons did not buy to sell again the same vigilance which is now exercised in regard to those demanding charity would be necessary here. One may beg to sell, as well as buy to sell, but it should not discourage the work that it is liable to abuse. God's best gifts to man are hourly abused. Shall we expect more for ours? all articles would not find purchasers it may be said true but what remains in hand will constitute the supply to be given in direct charity and it is presumed that there will always remain a demand in this quarter equal to the supply even under the best systems of distributive and protected labor it may be asked if this system will not operate against the merchants who deal in ready-made clothing. It should not in the least, as these people could never purchase a garment at full price and consequently could not become their customers. In order that my suggestions should not seem merely theoretical, permit me to turn for a moment to the more practical details it may be asked if garments can be made to fit women and girls without actual measurement i would reply that with a graduated scale of five or six sizes we have found no more difficulty in fitting women than the tailor finds in fitting men and boys without actual measurement again will there not be much waste of material in cutting quantities of garments very little literally none in the graduated sizes one garment cuts from the form left by the other down to the smallest size and of the pieces too small for these we have the custom of making caps for boys and mittens for the hands so that no piece larger than the size of a child's hand need be left unused it would be proper to mention among materials to be purchased the small articles necessary in the making up of garments such as thread laces buttons agraphs tapes etc etc the sale of which would still benefit another class of small merchants i may have dwelt too strongly and too long upon the subject of putting a price upon charities but if so 
I can only ask to be excused upon the ground of the moral elevation I so ardently desire for the unhappy people of your city, and remind you that it is a simple thing to leave this idea untouched, as the giving of work by no means depends upon it, and this course alone pursued after the ordinary methods of charity will of itself place the name of the Comité of Strasbourg high upon the roll of the active charitable institutions of the world, with sentiments of the highest consideration both for yourself and your honorable Comité. I remain, dear sir, very truly yours, Clara Barton. Strasbourg, January 3rd, 1871. By this time, there were organized American agencies for the relief of suffering caused by the war. Clara Barton endeavored to establish relationships with one of these at Brussels or Antwerp, but without conspicuous success, as shown by her letter to General Burnside. General Burnside, my esteemed general, I am sure that a word will suffice to remind you of our interview at Geneva and its object, and perhaps you will recollect that I craved the privilege of personal introduction from you to the American legation at Brussels, where it seemed proper to locate the headquarters of the American Organization for the Relief of the French Peasantry, which I had then traveled half the length of Germany and the width of Switzerland in the rain and snows to effect. I saw then so clearly all which has since transpired that I could not repress the conscientious demand of duty to use every effort within my power to prepare for the safe receipt and faithful and wise distribution of the forthcoming gifts of our countrymen although at that moment no societies assisted and no monies had been raised in America, to my knowledge, except by the French and Germans residing there. I had, like yourself, come fresh from the scenes of strife, want, and desolation, and was chilled and bewildered by the cool indifference of the Americans residing here, to whom I referred in such warmth of confidence only yourself, of all I met, gave a word of hearty approval. You will remember, as I was surrounded, that I could not tell you this at that moment. Neither had I words to tell you how grateful I was for your commendation of my plans. Even the names of those who knew me well were withheld from me, as it seemed to me to be exceedingly moderate and modest, proper hesitating and haggling until after you had given yours then they came so much weak men need a leader then i hurried back to my post of duty at strasburg and on to brussels still in the rain to be there on the fifth day hoping to find and through you gain the more willing aid of the american representation there and found something like american headquarters either there or at antwerp but to my excessive regret you had already passed out of town as i came in 
and I stood alone in that strange city with my heavy, unfinished task. I called upon General Shetland, who very properly recommended me to his superior. I called upon him. He met me sharply and unkindly, informed me in a needlessly rude manner that he never heard of me before and couldn't understand what I wanted, that he saw no names on my paper which justified him in placing his there, and he should not do it. Of course, I left his presence without a word. Genial General Shetland was hurt and offered his name if it would do any good, but I could not suffer him to place himself in unpleasant relations with his superior and declined it. Still in the storm and mud, defeated and discouraged, sore and weak, I left Brussels and made Metz which had that day opened its hungry gates. After a few hard days' work among its famishing, fevered population, I came once more to my work in Strasbourg. I now saw clearly that I could effect nothing in the way of an organization to aid the work of our countrymen when they should see fit to commence it. I was grieved for the loss, through this account, to the suffering French and the loss of satisfaction to our countrymen eventually when the wiser ones should come to realize that they had not done their own work in their own name and manner, and with the best results. But I was only one woman alone, and had no power to move to action full-fed, sleek-coated, ease-loving, pleasure-seeking, well-paid, and well-placed countrymen in this war-trampled dead old land, each one afraid that he should be called upon to do something. On June 1st, Miss Barton left her well-organized work in Strasbourg and hastened to Paris, where she spent about six weeks in the relief of suffering and distress. From there, she went to Lyon, where she established another workroom such as she had had in Strasbourg. Something of the detail of her work in Paris is afforded us in a brief letter to a gentleman in London, acknowledging a gift of five hundred pounds sterling for her work. We see something of the grim situation which she confronted in that city. A much more cheerful letter is one which she wrote to Annie Childs just as she was about to leave Lyon at the end of August. Annie had been her dressmaker for many years. This letter, informing Annie that she was now the head of a dressmaking establishment of her own, shows how fully at this time she seemed to have recovered her old vivacity and to be, amidst the desolation of a conquered country, her own wholesome, self-reliant self. Lyon, France, August twentieth, 1871. My dear Annie, if I were to make an apology as long as my offense, I could write nothing else. But I don't like apologies. You don't either, do you? then let me hasten to proclaim myself an idle, lazy, procrastinating, miserable, do-nothing, and good-for-nothing. 
If that isn't enough, I leave the sentence open for you to finish, and I sign it squarely when you have done and call it quits. But really, it has been too bad. I have neglected everybody in general, not you in particular. I thought I was too busy to write. I don't suppose I was, only that I did not employ my time well. I know this is often so, and perhaps always. I wish I had been better educated in this regard as well as every other. If you are ever married, as you doubtless will be, and have a family of eight or ten children, I beg you will make it a specialty in their several educations that they be taught to do things in the proper time. You will do me a favor to remember this as one of my efforts for the good of humanity. I wanted all last winter to tell you about my dressmaking and describe to you my shop. I knew it would interest you, if no one else. Now, wasn't that the last thing you would have thought of, that I should come to Europe and set up dressmaking and French dressmaking at that? I knew the fact would be a little surprise to most of my old friends who knew me best, but to you I imagine it a matter of bewildering astonishment. Well, you should have seen the patterns. Did I have patterns? Didn't I? And didn't I cut them myself? And didn't I direct all the making until I had imparted my wonderful art to others? And you think my garments were fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, that opinion comes of your being an old maid and so particular. I assure you, Miss Annie Childs, that they were nice garments and prettily cut and well made and I found them in excellent demand. Every one wanted them, and never a word of complaint of the price. Everybody seemed to be perfectly convinced that they were cheap enough at my first offer. I had ten young girls like yours, dressmakers, and from one to three men tailors who worked twelve hours a day, but only with the shears, never an hour's sewing and no one sewed at my shop, only those who must be taught to take something out and do it over. And we made dresses and socks and petticoats and chemises and aprons and hoods and mittens and pantaloons, vests, blouses, shirts, socks of all kinds of material and all sizes that ever the tiniest baby grew to. Oh, yes, and such lots of things for babies. Little dresses, little bonnets, cloaks, blankets, two thousand garments every week. I don't think they were gored and flounced and frilled as much as yours, Miss Annie Childs, but they were strong and warm and handsome. It is true all my seamstresses had not such nimble, delicate fingers as one might desire for the finest work. They wore very large thimbles sometimes, but there were plenty of small fingers in the family. They came very gladly twice a week to see me and showed me with great pride their successful efforts. 
always the work came home in the market basket, and always I knew that the same basket would load the other way with bread and a little meat if it were possible, but this was not always. But it was such a comfort to see them, week by week, grow better clothed themselves and the children, till by and by a woman and her baby came to look only like a big and a little bundle of the same clothing she carried in her basket. And all the working people of the city came to look like walking bundles of the same clothing. To be sure, it took away something from the picturesque style of the city, as I first saw it, when at least ten thousand human beings were perfectly arranged for models for the painter and the sculptor. I admit that it was highly artistic, but I thought it a potu for the season, considering that the earliest snows had commenced to fall. Oh, but don't you wish now that you had come and worked at the head of my shop? Didn't I wish it? More than once I sighed in my inmost soul for you. How rich I should have been with you at my side. Just think of it. I shall write to Fanny sometime when I ain't told all the news to you. Please hand her this if she looks patient and strong enough to stand it. How much I wonder what you are all doing at home. I seem entirely to have lost the thread, and from the stray little thrums which I get hold of, I cannot pick it up. I am just now in despair about Sally. Someone writes me that they suppose I know all about her and Vester's sickness. Imagine the effect of this piece of intelligence. Another says it was fortunate they were with Burr and Fanny, as they were sure of good care. This is consoling. What did they have, and how did they get it, and how was it, and when was it, and how is it now? Do pray you write and tell me. I am distressed, and can't at all help myself. I do hope that they have not had a serious illness but I keep feeling all the time that somebody will be sick. I keep writing Sally at Washington, but have no idea where she is and where you are this hot summer. And Fanny, poor, dear, neglected Fanny. She ought to cross me off her books, and I guess she has before this time. I know there has never been a day since I left that the entire troop of you all has not passed in panorama before me, and I have attempted to place you all as I thought it most likely to be, but I suppose I have been wide of the mark. For me, as you must have known a hundred times when I left Strasbourg, I went to Paris, and after six weeks there, distributing clothing and money, I left and came to Lyon, to visit a family of one of the younger ladies who had aided me twice since the war commenced, and I have remained here about as long as I was in Paris, but am ready to leave, and shall again this week go to Paris for a day or two to meet some parties of Americans who will be there on their way home, and from there I am to go, as I have been once, into the central eastern portion of France, 
to see the places and peoples who have been much destroyed by the war and the sieges. I have no idea how much time I shall consume here. I must judge this by the condition I find the people in. I am almost tired of France and long for Germany or something which is solid and Saxon. There is no truth, no fixedness of purpose, nothing reliable, nothing sensible in France, and it only disgusts me that they have always claimed the leadership of the world and that so stupidly it has been conceded to them. I do hope the German bayonets have punched a hole in that bubble large enough to burst it. It is certainly time. If they were even neat, I would not complain so much of them, but they are such a dirty race of people, dirty but fashionable. One gets tired of this. Now, you will see from this that it is a real merit in me to work for the French. I do it out of pity and charity toward suffering humanity, because they need, and not because I gratify my love or my taste by it. I do neither. I think it right to do, or I would not touch it, I do assure you. Now, there are so many people whom you see every day that I would be so glad to see that it makes me almost homesick to write you. Does Willis still remain in Oxford, and Uncle John and Nancy? How are they? And Mrs. Hannah Sanford and Mrs. Sigourney and all my cousins in Worcester, do you see them? Cousin Lydia Grout, do you see her ever? The Bacons and Stars and Cousin Maria? I am told that Cousin Ned is to be married, and then my Cousin Jerry, what of him? and the Dennys, and Dr. Snow. If you see him, please remember me most kindly. And the Towers, and Mr. and Mrs. T. W. Hammond. Don't you see, I am homesick to see all these people, even if they have forgotten me. I cannot help it. I'm sure you will write me a long letter full of news, just as is your specialty. For Annie Childs, you know, you do know, how to write a letter, and I shall wait for it now till it comes. You will address me, as usual, care of American legation, Bern, Switzerland. How does Burr behave? Does he boss his wife any? If he does, you pull his ears for me, and oblige yours truly, and believe me, your lovingest sis, Clara Barton. Benjamin Moran, Esquire Charge de Fer, London. Esteemed Sir, While I acknowledge the receipt of your favor and enclosed check for five hundred pounds, permit me, in the name of the suffering of France, to thank you and your committee most earnestly for the same. Your generous gift will enable me to send comfort into hundreds of desolate and more distraught families, whom I have hitherto been unable to reach. I beg you will permit me to explain that my attempts to clothe the people of France have not been the result of a desire to improve the personal appearance, but to aid in ridding them a little, if possible, 
from the scourge of pestilence and vermin which the war has so terribly spread among them. It is to be hoped that few will die of outright hunger during the next six months, but thousands must fall pitiful victims to disease lurking in the only old rags in which months ago they escaped from fire and destruction. Disease is spread from one family to another until thousands who are well today will rot with smallpox and be devoured by body lice before the end of August. Against the progress of these two scourges there is, I believe, no check but the destruction of all infected garments. Hence, the imperative necessity for something to take their place. Excuse, sir, I pray you, the plain, ugly terms which I have employed to express myself. The facts are plain and ugly. How industrious she was in Paris, and how bravely and cheerfully she did her work, is shown by two home letters which she sent out simultaneously in September one to her sister sally and the other to mrs bernard vassal her long-time friend fanny childs vassal paris september eighteenth eighteen seventy one my dear fanny i have forgotten if i really did send a line in annie's letter or not i know i wanted to but since i have received that precious gingerbread letter from all the family and i have read and re-read and spied into little corners to see some other welcome face peeping out it was so good of willis and bear to set their hands and seals yes i know all about receiving letters that call directly upon my heart and my desire to answer that hour and a thousand times i have said that those were the very letters which were to lie longest in neglect and likely enough never get answered at all the fact is i am over anxious about them and wait for a few moments of better opportunity feeling that i have much to say and so i wait and wait and these letters are the sore spot the worrying sin of my existence that little package which i cannot put by but which lies around and looks me in the face on the most impossible of occasions and reproaches in silence and comes late at night and early in the morning to haunt it may be to taunt me a little that little package is the plague of my life and yet i prize it most of all and couldn't have done without it but i can never quite dispose of it oh yes yes i do understand all you try so patiently to explain to me only that i don't think my poor scrap could ever have been one of the class of letter which burden me for i have no recollection whatever of it and seriously suspect it was only a little pile of trash it has been brave of you not to get sick in all summer with all your work and company and sickness besides but i am so glad that sally was with you and i suppose fester was also but it is not mentioned where he was during his illness 
I am spending some fine days in Paris, just what I most desired. I wanted to see some American people. It had been so long since I had seen them, and indeed there is no lack of them here. All Paris swarms with them, as I suppose it always does, and all grades. Some I am proud of, and some I am ashamed of. Some speak remarkably well and some cannot utter a proper sentence. Generally they are well-dressed, as the world goes, but to my eye over-rigged, as a sailor would say, but always much better than the English, who are the most fearful dressers in all Christendom. English women are solid and sensible, learned and self-possessed, and all the world respects them. But, the art of selecting and putting clothes onto themselves is something quite beyond their line of vision. Not that they do not wear enough. Oh, heavens, no, not that. There is always enough and to spare. But there is no calculation what portion or member of the body corporate it will be found dangling from. And Joseph's coat bore no comparison. Still, they are splendid women, and handsome, fifty percent more beautiful than the French. The French declare that the Germans cannot dress in decent manner, but I have seen much good, comfortable-looking dressing in Germany, and I rather liked it. I don't know what has induced me to write so much upon the silly matter of dress, unless that some of my sister-in abroad annoy me a little with theirs. I can see how busy Burr must be with his large family, and congratulate both him and his children upon the relationship. I imagine him to be the most sensible and paternal of parents. I shall be only too glad when you can really take your legitimate place in the work. I can see an equal call for your services. Go and look after the little girls. They may not like to tell all their troubles to their state papa, but would rejoice to reveal some things to a mamma. Go with Burr. I think that is one of your rights. It is, at least, your privilege. And you know, it is very well said that until women get their rights, they must keep their privileges. I also have something of a family in Europe, some hundreds of state children. But of my own immediate family, I have two delightful girls. They are as fully grown and developed as my two boys in America were, rather more, and about as near alike but charming girls, both good as they can be, and be human, live girls. One is all gentleness, the other all strength, but both are so loving, so obedient, so true. The elder is Miss Antoinette Margot. She is a thorough artist, and is with me at present, painting and visiting the Louvre and the Luxembourg and comparing notes with the Parisian painters. She is, at this moment, painting an American flag, and looking back over her shoulder to ask me how many of the red stripes must commence at the field, and ends with, Ma il est très joli.
Miss Anna Zimmerman is at her home in Karlsruhe, looking after the thousand wants of a clergyman's house, keeping the big brothers in order for the universities they are plodding through, obeying her papa and mamma, who tell her she is too independent and ambitious, writing at odd moments as she can pick them, reading Carlyle, Dickens, Goethe, Schiller, as she can steal the minutes, pining that she must be held in just such bondage of body and soul, praying for the day when she may come and live with me a little more, and beginning a long, strong, logical letter once in a while with, To the devil and with housework, why must I fritter away all the best years of my own life and starve my brain to cram my brothers who already have been taught twenty times more than they can apply? And she is right. But my sheet will be full, and I shall have said nothing at all. I have just written your marm, and I think perhaps that will find its way to you, and you must just have had a surfeit through Annie. I am glad she went for a vacation. I wonder what they do at Falmouth. When I am home, can't we go? I am not at all certain where I shall pass the winter. It may be I shall think I must work in France. I cannot tell how they will present themselves by winter, or I may think it well to quarter myself here in Paris and wait. And I have half a mind to go to Spain. This is perhaps the most sensible use I could make of the time. I must wait a little, the turning of events. I can tell better after a month more in the east of France. I am glad you have had a visit from Georgie. It was nice of her to send me a line. Is not Alice with you? Was she turned to ashes? Very possible, human nature can as well as wood or coal. Write me when you have time, and don't let Burr abuse you. Yours, Clara. To Burr. I am first-rate. How are you? For particulars, see within. After the terror and bloodshed of the Paris Commune, Miss Barton spent some time in northern France, laboring as she had labored in Paris and in Lyon, at Belfort, where she finished her work on October 27th and went for a little time of rest to Karlsruhe, where she was the guest of the Reverend Mr. Zimmerman, whose daughter had labored with her at Strasbourg. Antoinette Margot was there also, glad to turn from scenes of desolation to her work of painting. The middle of December she went forth again in bitter cold weather, accompanied by Antoinette Margot, distributing relief to the poor at Mulhausen, Belfort, and Montbelliard. She spent Christmas at Strasbourg, where she served a great Christmas dinner to some five hundred of her old acquaintances, and then returned to Karlsruhe. Activity agreed with Clara Barton. She rose to meet great emergencies. When the crisis was past, she felt the effect of so long a strain. 
again and again during her lifetime she carried an enterprise completely through to the triumphant close and when it was done collapsed from nervous overstrain twice in america that collapse had been indicated by the total failure of her voice at the close of the franco-prussian war she collapsed again this time it was not her voice but her eyesight her eyes were inflamed by the strain and smoke of the battlefields the nervous tension aggravated the discomfort of which the inflamed eyes were after all only a symptom for several months in the winter and spring of eighteen seventy two she was at karlsruhe in a state of semi-blindness chapter two part two